Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen, a barrister at Third Known Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really glad to be joined in, in the shed today by actually one of my colleagues. I think this is a first that one of my colleagues in Chambers has joined me. Um, Ariana Kelly is my colleague in Chambers, is here with me. Um, anyone who's heard one of these before, or listened to one of these before, um, will know that I don't like introducing the person. But over and above the fact you're a colleague of mine in Chambers, Ariana, introduce yourself to everyone else, please. Hi. Hello, my name is Ariana Kelly. Uh, my my job is as a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, where I focus on quarter protection and community care law. Um, by way of background, I had done some work on the CARE Act when it was in draft form, uh, which is when I first became interested in the, the many minutiae of the CARE Act and charging issues. And I have a background in public policy work. Brilliant. Well, welcome, welcome. Um, as you say, um, the, no, as you sort of alluded to, one of the reasons, in fact, the reason I'm particularly interested to have you in the show today is, is as a result of the book you've just published, as um, published by the Law Society on social care charging. So kind of navigating, navigating the, the Care Act aspects there, which I must just say is incredibly helpful. It's incredibly clear and incredibly useful for people because it's an absolute minefield. If you want the full review, please read our uh, the Chamber's Mental Capacity Report this month. Um, but just on, on, and why did you want to write the book? Well, it, I was actually asked to write it by the Law Society, um, but this has been an area that I've been interested in for a number of years. Uh, back in 2015, I had actually written a chapter for a community care handbook on social care charging. And after doing that, it was something which I then regularly advised upon for a lot of local authorities, deputies, attorneys, family members, um, and become a, a, a bit of a, a specialist subject, which I, I had to often apologize is perhaps not considered one of the most specialist subjects. Uh, what it is, though, is something that comes up a lot for people. And I think it is a really tangible problem that a lot of people experience in their care. And I think one of the particular difficulties around it is that there is not a lot of case law and the legislative framework on it is extremely arcane. Um, when the Law Commission was looking at the draft care and support bill, it commented specifically on care uh, charging issues as being some of the worst drafted subordinate legislation it had ever read. Um, and so I, I think there is quite a lot of work in trying to make sense of it and trying to make it clear for people. Um, that's not always easy because there's a huge amount of interaction between uh, the care and support charging regulations and other kinds and other regulations, including the income support regulations. And they're not always entirely consistent. There are things that I think may well be errors within the secondary legislation, but I, I suppose it's just something where we've all got to try to do our best to get some clarity for people about what they actually do and don't need to pay for their care. Yeah, and as I said, it, it, what's so helpful is it, it helps people navigate through in a clear way and it gathers all them, and also it gathers the material together in a clear way. I mean, one of the so I, one of the things I really wanted to sort of dig in with you um, in the shed, if I may, because sort of so much of that, so much, so much of what I'm interested in is the kind of capacity side, the mental capacity side. Is can you just sort of help help people who may not be necessarily specialists in the area, or or indeed having cut off thinking about it the first time? How does this business of charging start interacting with with people who might have um, impaired decision making capacity? So it comes up a lot. Um, so the book is specifically around charging under the CARE Act 2014. And yep. I think it's not 
I mean, to, to my view, I would say it is not necessarily known by most people that people have to pay for care and support that they receive. I think it comes as often an unwelcome surprise for a lot of people at the time when they receive care that that is something they're going to have to pay for. Um, I think with a lot of the public discussions around the care, cap on care costs, that is something that people are probably getting to know a little bit better, that that is something they're going to be expected to make a contribution to. But I think just sort of in the in the broadest outline for anyone who has accessible capital of over twenty three thousand two hundred and fifty pounds, they are responsible for the full costs of their care. But there are a lot of exceptions to that. And I think um, it can become very complicated insofar as it depends on how your assets are held, the extent to which they're property, the extent to which people are living in property or not, and a, a lot of other issues like whether your money came from a personal injury award or other sources. Around issues of capacity, uh, because we are talking about people who are receiving care under the CARE Act 2014, by definition, this is, has to we have to be talking about a person who has some form of disability one way or another. For many people, the point at which they enter care is when uh, they're diagnosed with dementia mm -hmm. and require ongoing care and support for that basis. But there can be many other people who the, the relevant disability for which they are receiving care is something that also... Uh, causes them to lose capacity one way or another. So it is something that can happen at the start of somebody requiring care and support as they may lack capacity from the outset of needing that care and support. It may be something that progressively develops as they do receive care and support. So if a person may at the outset of receiving care have capacity to make decisions around their property and affairs, but for example, with an advancing dementia, that may be something they lose over time. So it it, it can it can factor in in a number of different ways for an individual. And it's something that it can also be really a touchstone for a local authority becoming aware that a person may have lost capacity to deal with their property and affairs because, and they're being, as they're being charged for the care uh, and they not be paying for their bills. That may be when it flags up to the local authority that this is a person who is perhaps not actually able to manage their finances anymore. So, so let's, should we sort of start at the beginning of the journey, as it were, just so people have some sense of, I mean, you know, as, as you've identified, I think it will have come to many people, news to many people listening to this, that actually, if it's on the care side, as opposed to provision of health care or continuing health care by the NHS, you're having to make a contribution. So the first, I suppose one question is, I mean, do you have to have, do you have to consent to being charged? I mean, how does it work? Do you have to agree or, you know, how, how does that aspect work? And and I think that's something that's often surprising to people is that you don't have to consent to being charged. Um, I think the there's this is something I've certainly seen in my practice, both on the side of people being surprised that their relatives are being charged for care because they can't actually recall them, the relative ever agreeing to be charged for care. Um, I've also seen it on the debt recovery side of people running uh, what are termed free man of the land arguments of feeling that if they didn't sign a contract to pay for their care and support, then they couldn't be charged for that. Mm -hmm. uh, I often equate it as being more similar to council tax is that the it, it's something you simply have to pay. The local authority doesn't have to obtain your specific consent to pay charges for care. What I would say is that for someone having capacity, they should be making a decision about whether or not to accept care and support with a full knowledge of what that comes with and the fact that it will not be free and there may be relevant charges for the person to pay. But it's not really sort of an either or. It's either you want the care and support and the charges will come along with that, or you don't want the care and support and the charges may not come along with that. Um, where it comes up around capacity issues, it, it may well be a situation where a person actually doesn't have capacity to make a decision about whether to accept the care and support which is being offered to them. So they may not have actually given con capacitous consent to do that. 
but I, I suppose it is again just important to look at it that it comes as, as as a package that if it's in the person's best interest to receive care the council is entitled to make charges for that care um so in order to make charges for care and support, there has to be an assessment of finances done. There are some provisions around urgently providing care and the assessment, the financial assessment can be done in due course. But in general, in order for a local authority to make any charge for care and support, they have to complete a financial assessment. And that requires the person to be able to set out what their capital is, what their income is, and really just provide a full picture of that. Uh, for some people, this may be really straightforward. However, this is something that comes up often enough to be included in the care and support statutory guidance that you may find that a person is lacking capacity at that point in time. They may not be aware of the extent of their finances. They may not be aware of the extent of their income. And the statutory guidance is really clear that if that is the case, they shouldn't be forced to participate in a financial pro uh, assessment process. This may be very distressing to the person to be asked lots of questions that they may or may not know the answer to, or they may feel pressured to give an answer, even if they're not really clear on that situation. So the statutory guidance is really clear that this is something that council should be alive to. They should be considering whether or not a person actually has that capacity to participate in the financial assessment, because the council has to actually know whether they're getting that financial assessment right, or whether this is potentially a situation where someone needs to step in and act as deputy if it's possible uh, and the person still has capacity to make an attorneyship they may wish to appoint an attorney for many people it may actually just be a matter of getting an appointee because they may have much more limited assets which are uh, which are benefit only but i think it is one of those points that it's very important for the council to consider that whether this is a person who is participating with capacity or without capacity and to take whatever steps are needed in order to get that assessment done properly Okay, no, that's that's super clear. And then, so sort of moving the next stage on in the journey, as it were. So you know, we worked out the person needs care and support. We you know, and some identification of well, how are we going to start meeting those needs? And then, how does that factor in? I mean, or for the person who may not have, who may have impaired decision making capacity. I suppose one one first one question started off is well, what decisions are we expecting of the person? If you see what I mean, because if capacity is decision specific, what is it? Well, and, and I think this is, I mean, in the whole care planning process, I think, again, everyone would need to be alive to the capacity around making decisions on what care a person should or shouldn't receive. Um, where I think there are two really interesting points around capacity where it interacts with finances and the choices that a person may have. Um, the first is around choice of accommodation. Now, the a person is entitled to have their preferred accommodation if they have the funds to pay for it. Um, this would have to be a like-for-like like trade. So if you've been assessed as, and it, excuse me, and it only applies if you are in specified accommodation. So if you've been assessed as needing accommodation in a care home, you can pick as between care homes, which meet your needs appropriately and the local authority satisfied that they do that, assuming that any additional cost condition is met. So if you are generally entitled to local authority funded care uh, and you're family members are able to make that additional payment to put you in your preferred accommodation, you're entitled to have that if all the relevant conditions are met. Uh, I should note there's actually really similar provisions. I, well, we have been normally talking about CARE Act charging. There are yeah. really similar provisions for Section 117 accommodation. And in that case, a person can actually pay their own top-ups, um, whereas under the CARE Act, it's only uh, you can only have third-party top-ups or top-ups which are made by way of a deferred payment agreement um, if that is something that has been agreed with the local authority under specific conditions. Um, however, something where I think this is actually really interesting and interacts with capacity is what the regulations say around choice of accommodation payments and top-ups is it's not actually about a person making a choice 
to live in or rather making a decision to yeah. live in a, a different accommodation. It's about the person's preference. I think this is a really interesting language because I have certainly seen in many cases local authorities suggesting that a person doesn't have capacity to choose and therefore doesn't necessarily have the entitlement to do that because they're not making a capacitist decision about which care home to live at. But that's not actually what the, the legislation says. Mm. What it says is if the person has expressed a preference and the relevant conditions are met, then the person is entitled to have the local authority provide that accommodation for them. So I think it would, your question specifically, I guess, is about when capacity applies. I suppose this is a case where I actually think it doesn't apply because it's really just a matter of preference rather than capacity's decision making. But I think that's also going to be dependent on the ability of the person to pay that top up and their ability to get the money to fund the additional cost of care. If you do have multiple uh, care homes or nursing homes or supportive living accommodations, again, always a, a like for like trade, a person that, that all costs the same, again, just based on the person's preference, they would have an entitlement to pick mm. between those. And I think particularly where you have care homes that are on a local authority framework and are all accepting the same rate, I think... I think this is actually quite interesting in a lot of court protection proceedings is an acknowledgement that it's actually just about what the person prefers and they're entitled to have that choice um, it provided to them. And that would become an available option for the person, even if there's a contested view on best interests in relation to the person. Which is really, I mean, in some ways it's remarkably, I don't want to say enlightened isn't quite the right term, but the idea that, pref I mean, I think, as you say, preference is a conscious parliamentary choice to use that language. And I, I think, assume it is anyway. Yeah, well, I think let's <laughs> yeah. charitably assume um, uh, Parliament means what it says when it chooses a specific word, because it could say decide, it could have said something, but express a preference I think is really interesting. And I think it's very important, especially as when then thinking in kind of when one thinks in all the language about capacity and best interests about, you know, the fact that someone doesn't have capacity to make a decision doesn't mean they're not, they're not in a position to express a view. So I think there is something hugely important that it, it's not just a cliff edge. And so that idea of people are saying, well, they don't have capacity to decide. So, well, actually, as you said, that's actually that's not the question. That's not yeah. the issue. So, yeah. No, and, that, and, I, and I think and I'm I'm very worried. I mean, that, that that's about a public law entitlement rather yes. than a yeah. best interest decision. But I mean, no, but I mean, if, in that in that framework of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, but and I, but I think you are absolutely right, because I mean, throughout the CARE Act and the regulations for the, the care and support regulations of various kinds, I mean, these are regulations that are very alive to the fact that you may be talking about people who lack capacity. And there's a lot of specific provision made within the CARE Act itself and within the secondary legislation about what you do in the circumstance where a person has capacity and what you do in the circumstance where a person doesn't have capacity. And that's just not something that shows up in choice of accommodation where it is the language is just preference. Yeah, which slightly reinforces the point that Parliament must have we Parliament must have taken to have been, as it were, know what it known what it was doing. So I think that I mean we're beginning sadly to run tight on time because I mean this this is as it were dynamitely useful stuff for a, a huge number of people for whom I suspect a lot of this will come as as it were news. Um, so the last bit I sort of want to just dig in, sort of pick your brains on is in relation to the situations where someone, for instance, may have relatively advanced dementia, not not knowing that they're supposed to be paying bills, not knowing they're supposed to be doing things and things just spiraling yeah. and then, you know, sort of threatening letters and things like that. Can you just sort of walk us through, I mean, on, on the on the sort of charging side, not the more kind of being chased by utility providers and that kind of thing? Yeah, and I, I think, unfortunately, this is a situation which uh, happens on, on a very not infrequent basis and gives rise to a lot of complaints to the ombudsman. Um, I, I would say in my personal experience, I think it's more likely to happen 
where charging and debt recovery is undertaken out outside of the local authority by a private provider rather than in-house in the local authority. And some of the debt recovery may be done somewhat more mechanically without the people actually knowing what the person's overall situation is, perhaps not having read their needs assessment and understanding that, as you said, that you may be talking about a person who may be suffering from quite severe dementia. Um, I have certainly seen a number of cases where you get really quite difficult, I mean, it would be difficult for almost anyone to receive letters being sent to people in care homes, informing them that unless they pay, you know, 50,000 pounds, you know, whatever, by 28 days time, that they will be evicted from their care home and that all care will cease for them and this and the other. Um, I, I would say, so there's a couple of things around this uh, with capacity and a sort of interaction with care. Um, one is, again, the statutory guidance, much like at the entry point, is very clear on debt recovery that you have to actually be alive to the circumstances under which a person may be accruing debts. And I think that this is not at all an uncommon scenario is that a person with advancing dementia may, may simply be, feel unable to deal with uh, with correspondence and requests for money and they may, they may simply not be able to do it. And that is why they are accruing debts. Um, the Both the statute and the guidance are actually really clear that efforts have to be made to try to resolve things, uh, to re resolve debt situations with people outside of court before mm -hmm. any claims are actually filed to recover the debts. And the guidance is again, really clear in saying that you have to be really cognizant as to whether or not this person actually has capacity to resolve this debt themselves, whether they may need, may need a deputy appointed, whether the local authority itself may need to go and seek deputyship for the person rather than engaging in any um, in any sort of litigation with them. And that's not necessarily, I mean, for a person who's lacking capacity, it's really not at all an appropriate means for the local authority to go down. Um, I think, again, trying to be very sensitive to the situations that people are in and avoiding this sort of distress to people, which is very which is very avoidable. I think if there's more of a holistic realization of why this person has come to be in debt. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, A, thank you for, for, for laying so such a huge amount of information out so clearly just now in such a short space of time. And then more broadly for laying out both the issues related to capacity, but actually the much bigger picture in relation to social care charging in the more, in the book more generally. Thank you very much indeed for your time, Arianna. Thank you so much for having me.